0: morning everyone. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, as Dave mentioned, my name is Jeff Clewer. I uh, have the, the privilege and joy of serving at Side of Hills Christian Camp. My wife and I are on uh, full-time staff there and uh, we've been there about nine years going into our ninth summer, about to start our, our crazy season there at camp. Um, so if you could just keep us in your thoughts and prayers uh, as we seek to, uh, to make much of Christ uh, to the guests and campers that are going to be coming there this summer. Um, my, one of my biggest burdens, uh, I've kind of been given responsibility over our summer staff and discipling them well. And uh, they come uh, May 28th, which is next Sunday. So it's coming fast, and uh, we're looking forward to, uh, to building into them so that they can then build into uh, the campers that come to camp uh so just be in prayer uh for us as we seek to be faithful in that area well, I'm thankful to uh to be with you this morning I know I haven't met a lot of you um but I know that this much is true that we serve the same savior and uh we can we can uh just uh sympathize with each other and uh know that uh we're here for the same reason right to make much of Jesus so that's what I want to do for you this morning uh, as we look at the word and uh, look at the merciful, loving father uh, that we all have together. Uh, so if you would, let's stand together. We're going to read the, the passage that we're going to work through this morning. Uh, we're looking at first Peter chapter two. And I know your your liturgy says through verse 12, but we're actually just going to stop at, at verse 10 um, that'll, I think that'll be full enough for us, uh, so we're going to read chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are beul- being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. You guys can be seated. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into the passage here. Father, we are so very thankful for your mercy this morning. We know that apart from you sparing us from the deserved judgment for our sins, God, we would not be here. We would not be able to share in the joy of of knowing you through your Son. So we're just the thankful people this morning. pray that you would... Continue to open our eyes to the glory of Christ in your word, that as we remember who we are in him, that we are your adopted sons and daughters, that that would just fill us with joy to the point that we can't help but proclaim that truth to the world around us. Father, thanks for your spirit that has guided us, that has prepared our hearts uh, to hear from you. pray that he would work mightily through me uh, to speak your truth boldly and to apply that truth uh, to the hearts uh, of your people. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. All right, as we get started, let me just ask you to uh, consider this question. How at home are you in this world? It's easy for us to kind of get caught up in thinking like the culture just because we hear it day in and day out. This idea that there's there's happiness, that there's fulfillment to be found in putting ourselves at the center of our own lives. That's what our culture is constantly telling us. It's kind of the status quo of... Of this fallen world that you, you need to do what's best for you. Now I think we know there's only one problem with that and that's that it doesn't work. It's a recipe for endless disappointment to try to please ourselves. All the allurements of this world the only thing that they actually do is numb us from the realization that nothing in this world whether that's money or status Adoration from men, none of that can satisfy our souls completely. And we know this to be true as believers. God has made us to be fully satisfied in him alone, right? And praise be to God, he's also made it possible to be satisfied in him. Through faith in his beloved son, Jesus, we have access to the Father now. He has come near to us. He has given us himself. We can drink from the fountain of glory and be satisfied. So the question now becomes, how can we live in this fallen world and still find our satisfaction in Christ on a daily basis? How does our future hope in Christ shape our lives now, both in words and actions? Uh, We've had the privilege of going through this book, 1 Peter, at my home church church. Uh, Grace Community Church at Bigelow in Portsmouth. We've been going through that uh, for the past few months. And in his letter, Peter is addressing these believers that have been dispersed all throughout uh, the region. And he uses this specific name when he addresses them. He calls them exiles. So what that means when he calls them an exile is that they're not living in the place that they would normally call home. They are displaced, they're in a hostile land, they're living among hostile people, and that caused them quite a bit of discomfort and suffering. That's kind of their their state that they're living in. However, Peter is writing to them to remind them of the hope and joy that they have in Christ. His first order of business in the letter is to invite the believers along with him to praise God for what he has done, for who he's made them to be. He's reminding them of this very basic but important truth. We have to know who we are before we can live like we are. I know the grammar is a little a little funky on that statement. We have to know who we are before we can live like we are. But let that truth sink in a little bit. We cannot live the way that God wants us to live if we're believing lies about our identity. just doesn't work. Our our director at Camp Scott loves to use this phrase when he's looking at the epistles and kind of the the pattern that you see. He says that belief affects behavior. It's not the other way around. It's not the way that we behave then causes us to think something or believe something. Now deep down, what we believe in our heart of hearts to be true is going to affect how we then live. So makes sense when we look at First Peter that he's going to make sure in the first part of his letter to set straight the true identity of his audience. I'm not going to preach through the whole first chapter, but I do want to briefly summarize what he says. First, in verses 1 through th- 3, he says, you are the ones chosen for obedience to Jesus. He's saying God loves us because he chose to love us. It's nothing that we could do to earn his love. He did the choosing uh, in verse 2, he says, before the foundation of the world and the foreknowledge of God. He also says you are the born-again ones who have an eternal hope in verses 4 and 5. Again, this is God causing this. He has caused us to be born again. His mercy moved him not to condemn us in our sin but to give us his son, and life in his son, and to give us his righteousness and hope of eternal life. We get this full inheritance with Jesus. It's amazing. And he also says we can't fail or lose that inheritance because, again, not of what we do, but because of God's power that is guarding us. Isn't that a comfort to you this morning? God is guarding us against ourselves. Our completed salvation, then, is awaiting us in heaven. That's what we had to look forward to. And then in verses 6 through 9, he says, you are the, the joyful ones in the midst of trials. He's saying that the basis of our joy in this life is Jesus himself. He's the rock on which our salvation stands. He cannot be shaken, therefore our joy cannot be shaken. It doesn't matter that we haven't seen Jesus physically yet. Because by faith, we love him. And we look forward to his appearing with what the passage says is inexpressible joy. We can't even express the joy that we have with words. That's how great it is. And then finally, in verses 10 through 12, he says, you're the ones that have been served by the prophets in God's redemption plan. He's laying out What happened in the Old Testament as these prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be ours, yours, he's saying to these believers. We can be confident that the gospel preached to us is the same good news that God has been proclaiming from the beginning. His grace would be given to his people at the proper time. And we can be confident that his plans for his people cannot be undone. Just as Dave mentioned from the passage earlier, when God makes a promise, he fulfills it. He keeps it. So after all of that is established, this is who you are, Peter then is going to go on in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 to give these believers some exhortations. So you see the pattern there. This is who you are. Now I can move on to say this is what your life should look like. So quickly, he says, exiles must set their hope on Christ's coming, in verse 13. He says exiles must seek the holiness of their father, be holy as your father is holy, in verses 14 through 16. He says exiles must live in reverent fear of their father, in verse 17. He says they must live as those ransomed at a high cost, which is the precious blood of Christ, in verses 18 and 19. He also says they must recognize their gifts of hope and faith that was bought with that blood of Christ, verses 20 and 21. Then he moves on to the relationships within the body. Exiles must love each other earnestly and purely, verse 22. And then lastly, at the end of chapter 1, exiles recognize the source of their love and life, which is the very word of God in verses 23 through 25. I know that was a lot, just wanted to cover the context of chapter one before we move into chapter two today. So the beginning of chapter two, the immediate context of what we're going to study today, Peter is urging his hearers to to put away harmful heart attitudes towards each other. He's still talking about how do exiles relate to one another in the church? He says, put away all these harmful attitudes under this umbrella of malice, having malicious thoughts towards each other. And instead, in their place, he charges them to crave or long for the pure spiritual milk of the word of God. That is what is going to sustain us and nourish us in this life. The gospel goodness of Jesus. And it's administered to our souls by the spirit of Christ through the word of Christ. Now that that's the identity of the Christians Peter was writing to and that's our identity as well. We are exiles, we're strangers in this world. It isn't our home. And we need to recognize that the thing that keeps us growing and moving forward literally keeps us alive as we journey is the very word of Christ. It's what we need. It's our sustenance. Think with me, imagine with me that you are lost in the desert. You've been there for weeks with the scorching heat of the sun constantly on you. Your throat is dry. You're longing for a drink. And just when you've given up hope, you come across a stream with clear, crystal clear, cold water, what would your reaction be? You would run to it, right? You would run to it and drink as much as you could. Now let's take that a step further and imagine that you weren't alone in the desert, that with you was a group of people as thirsty as you were, but they were too tired and wearisome to to go on They sent you ahead, and you found this stream of water. Now think about what you would do if you came across that stream. Yes, you would drink yourself. You would be satisfied with that water. But then what would you do? If you cared at all about that group group of people that you were with, you would take that water back to them by any means. That's what I want us to think about this morning, how I want to encourage you this morning. What do we do after we are nourished by this word? Do we keep it to ourselves? Or do we share it willingly and lovingly? What happens when, while praising and proclaiming the Lord's goodness, it's another, another way of thinking about it, what happens when we are ridiculed and treated differently by those who are not part of God's family? What keeps us in that moment, from abandoning our faith? So as we're thinking about those questions, uh, I want to look to God's word to answer them. That brings us to our first point for this morning, if you want to write it down. Exiles believe in the chosen cornerstone, and they offer sacrifices to God through him. Let me say that again. Exiles believe in the chosen cornerstone and offer sacrifices to God through him. Now, as we're moving on in chapter 2, in verse 4 is where we're going to start. kind of seems as if Peter's making a, this weird jump in language. Uh, he starts talking about stones, priests, all, the, all these Old Testament pictures, language that appears to just have popped into his head out of nowhere. What's the connection then? between the end of verse 3 and verse 4. Let me read that so we get a little bit better idea of the context here. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, "...put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good." So that's part of our answer. As we taste of God's goodness, it's going to change our actual desires. The more we taste of God, the more we're going to want of God. So Peter anticipates that after we've tasted the Lord, we're going to come to him. We're going to come to Jesus in verse 4. We're going to come to him constantly, over and over again. He draws us in. Nothing else, again, is going to satisfy us once our souls have had a drink of Jesus, the living water. And this is where Peter's mind goes next. Christ is the living stone, in verse 4. It's kind of interesting, if you think about Peter's history, that he didn't use the term rock here, but stone. Remember, that's what Jesus named him in Matthew 16, on this rock is the meaning of of peter his name i will build my church jesus was saying he would give peter along with the other apostles the ability to lay the foundation of the truth of the gospel and jesus would then build a people on top of that foundation but here in his letter peter uses this term living stone so he is speaking of the living one the christ who has been resurrected as the king of the very universe he created His resurrection, if you'll remember, gives us living hope from chapter 1. That's why he can say that Jesus is living, he's alive. And Peter will also show later that Christ is a very special type of stone. He is the cornerstone or the foundation of the church. In his day, Peter would have known that the cornerstone of any building is what makes that building strong. It's that critical stone that makes sure a building is straight, that it's stable, and that's what Christ is to our faith. Right? He is the substance of everything that we believe in. He's what all of our faith hinges on, and without him, our whole faith would would just fall apart, wouldn't exist. Peter is also here in verse four. Going to introduce this, <clears throat> this dichotomy of rejection and acceptance. He says Jesus was rejected by men in verse 4. There were those in Peter's day that did not believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he was not truly the Son of God. And we will learn more about them later in the passage, but here, Peter's just simply using them to serve as the opposite view of what God thinks about this living stone. You see, in God's sight, Jesus is chosen and precious. This is the true sight of who Jesus really is. God the Father, in his infinite wisdom, chose Jesus to be the Savior of the world, the one that would perfectly fulfill the law's demands. And then, he would give his righteousness to the unrighteous, sinners like you and me. That's our glory this morning, right? Now, because we share in this righteousness, we can now be called living stones as well. You see that in what Peter says next. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. We are being built up as a spiritual house. This is the first metaphor that Peter's going to use in the passage to describe us, the church, a spiritual house. You could also substitute that word for for temple or the dwelling place of God, where God chooses to dwell. That language is not new in the epistles. It's not the first time it shows up. Uh, In Ephesians 2, verses 20 and 21, Paul actually states that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being built and joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So again, Jesus is the absolutely crucial stone in the foundation of the church, which is the living, growing, unified building of God. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 21, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, th- this is how God dwelling in us is even made possible. He has sent his very Spirit to indwell us and to open our eyes to his glory and to be used by him to carry out his sovereign will in the world. Just, just think ab- about that. We, we take that for granted, that we have the very Spirit of God in us. How could we make any excuses about or complain about what man can do to us if that's true? Brothers and sisters, we have to cling to that reality in order to, to carry out our calling, in order to uh, behave or live in a way that honors God. We cannot obey God on our own. And guess, guess what? We don't have to. He's given us his spirit to empower us to obey him. Amen? I was just reading this week um, in my devotions in Ezekiel chapter 36. God is making the same promise of, of putting his spirit within his people, promising to dwell among them in their presence. And he says this, I will be your God and you will be my people. We'll hear an echo of that later on in the passage. But I think, I think that same promise is spoken of here. The church is not a building. That God comes and lives in. It is the very people. In which he now dwells. He abides in. He makes his home. In you. The temple of the Old Testament was only temporary. And what it was pointing forward to. Which was part of God's plan all along. Was for God to dwell within his people. That's incredible. But we got to think. Why did Peter include this language of of a house or temple here? What's the point for Peter's audience? Let's remember again who they are. They're exiles. They were not in a familiar land. They were not in their home. They were living in a foreign land among a foreign people, and that made it difficult for them to live out their faith. Look real quick with me uh, over at chapter 4 in verse 4. Peter here, he's speaking of the Gentiles that are living in worldly sinful ways. And Peter says about them, they are surprised when you do not join them in their debauchery. And here's how they react to the Christians. They malign you. They make fun of them. They put them down. This is what the Christians that Peter was writing to were facing. So how could he encourage this group of people? He had just finished In chapter 1, charging them to live holy lives, live filled with a denial of selfish pleasures and then a genuine brotherly love for one another. That would have been totally different than the behavior of the people, the culture that they were living in. So where does he turn to for comfort? What he turns to is the living stone that was rejected by men, just like they were being rejected. He now dwells with you through his spirit. So if we are joined with Christ, we have the same strength that he showed when he endured ridicule from men. And we can say the opinion of men doesn't matter anymore when God considers you chosen as precious, just like he considered Jesus chosen and precious. That's what we've inherited because we are in Christ. Friends, we are united to Christ in his suffering, and that means that one day we will be united to him in glory. Amen. That's what Peter has been reminding this group of people all throughout the letter. There's this eternal glory awaiting us on the other side of these temporary trials. We've got to see the reality of that, that these trials are only temporary and we have this eternal glory waiting for us. Now what Peter does next, uh, in verses 6 through 8, he's going to support all of these theological statements that he just made with scripture. That should be our inclination when defending our faith as well. God's word alone is absolutely authoritative when it comes to our truth claims. You believe that that's true? Hope you do. And uh, Peter was a student of his word. He, he had a little bit of an advantage uh, because he walked with the word embodied. He, worked, he walked with Jesus and was shown by him that he was the Christ, the one that fulfilled all the promises made throughout scripture. Now, one of those promises was Jesus being foretold as this cornerstone, like we already mentioned. So in verses six through eight, What Peter's going to do is is he's finding three different instances in his Bible, which was the Old Testament, that speaks of a stone. We see him here in verses 6 through 8, quoting Isaiah 28, Isaiah 8, and Psalm 118. Now, what would have tipped Peter off that these passages were about Jesus? How, How would he have known that? turns out that jesus himself quoted one of those same passages while peter was listening now i know you as believers don't don't believe in coincidences right we believe in the sovereignty of god and i promise i didn't plan this out or uh work with dave on this but the passage that uh, that that jesus is going to quote is actually found in matthew 21 which we've already read this morning. So turn back there with me just to see what Jesus did here. Matthew 21. Jesus, like we already read this morning, he tells this parable of the master of a house and these wicked tenants that are looking over the house. The master sends servants to check on tenants, and what do they do? They beat the master's servants. Then, after that, the master sends his son, saying, They will respect my son. But even worse than what they did to the servants, these tenants kill the master's son. At the end of the parable, Jesus quotes the very same psalm that Peter just quoted in, in his letter The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter was listening. To Jesus, it was revealed to him that Christ Himself was this cornerstone that God had sent to His people, and instead of accepting Him as from the Father, the evil builders, the Israelites, the tenants from this story rejected Him and then ultimately crucified Him. Now, here's here's what the, that's the center of Peter's exposition here. What every person has to wrestle with, it's the response to that cornerstone. Are you going to reject him, or are you going to accept him? Peter's audience, the early church, they had believed in him. They had recognized him as the one sent by the Father to save his people and give them an inheritance in him. And because of this this God-given faith, they would, as you see in verse 6, not be put to shame. And then in verse 7, they would also receive honor. That's what the believers get. Now, contrasted against that faith-fueled trust in Jesus and the truth of the gospel, Peter contrasted the unbelief of the others. In verse 4 and 7, he says that they who have not believed have rejected Jesus, who is the cornerstone that God had laid. They didn't see Jesus for who he really was the very Son of God, sent to save them from their sins. Then we come to to verse 8. Peter says these unbelievers stumbled over the rock. He says that they're offended by the rock. And he said that this stumbling over the rock is the result of them disobeying the word. So they disobeyed the word of Christ, and that's why they're stumbling over him. It's that same word in verse 3 that we just read earlier. Peter says it's the good tasting food of the believer. So a totally different response to the word as well. Now this this is a hard saying. Peter says that they disobeyed because they were destined to do it. It's hard to, hard to grapple with that. We don't have all the time uh, to, to get into the implications, all the implications of that statement. But we do need to recognize there's two realities that the Bible sheds light on. First, God is sovereign over all redemptive history, choosing whom he will to be his people. And also true at the same time, every person that rejects his free offer of grace in Christ will be held responsible for their unbelieving, sinful hearts. Friends, that's that's a sobering reality. All eternity hangs in the balance of you believing or rejecting Christ and his word. That's how important the response to Jesus is. So after the chosen ones respond in faith, what do they do next? What's the outcome or purpose of their faith? That's the second point I want to focus on, and that's what we're going to close on today. That is, exiles proclaim the excellencies of the one who called them. Exiles proclaim the excellencies of the one that called them. We see that in verses 9 and 10. Peter, again, he's recognizing who he's writing to, so he's quick to differentiate from the unbelieving. In verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What he's doing is he's contrasting the believers with the majority of the people among whom they were dispersed. Instead of rejecting Jesus, they saw him as chosen, as precious, just like the Father, and they received him with gladness as the promised Messiah. Because of this, look what Peter calls them and what God ultimately calls them, chosen, in his own possession. Now this is a bit of a callback to God's uh, original chosen people, the Israelites. That same language we can see used in uh, Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That's Moses speaking. It was not because you were more in number, but it is because the Lord loves you. This is God's unconditional choosing of his people. We as the church can now enjoy those same distinctives that were used for Israel. You are my people. We can enjoy those same distinctives because we are now in Christ. We've been grafted in. We've been adopted as part of the family of God. Now, do you see what's happening here? Peter is circling back to... What he first mentioned in chapter 1, verse 3, it is all according to God's mercy that you are born again, that you've been given this new life, and that you've been made into an actual new race of people, the mercy-receiving race. That's why Peter can say here in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. They're in a completely different reality now. That's their new identity. Not man, not woman, not by their ethnicity, but they are in Christ. They are God's people. And because of that, we are also now a royal priesthood. We serve the king. And we are part of the king's family. We have this amazing ability to offer acceptable sacrifices. And those sacrifices are our worshipful lives, our very lives that we lay down because we've been given the righteousness of Christ. The Israelites couldn't do that. They had to have a priest, someone in between, to offer sacrifices for their sin. They couldn't come to God themselves. But because we've now been given the righteousness of Christ. We have full access to the Father. He accepts our sacrifices, our lives, because of Christ's righteousness. So here's the big question that I want you to take away today. Why did God do all of this? Why why did he call us as his people? Here's Peter's answer at the end of verse 9. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now that word proclaim, that means to to show forth, to tell out, to, to even advertise. We should be so blown away by the marvelous love of our Savior, by the bottomless riches of his glory, love, mercy, and grace that we cannot help but shout his praises. That's both with our words and with the way that we live. In other words, we we exist not to call attention to ourselves, like the culture wants us to believe. We are now freed from that to make much of the one who called us out of darkness. We now share in his light, and we can call others to join us in the light. We can say, come, drink, drink. Everyone who's thirsty, come and eat. Everyone who's hungry, come out of the darkness of your sin and into the light of his glorious grace. Amen. This is the way God has ordained to bring others into his fold and to make much of himself to a dying world. It's through the proclamation of the excellencies of Christ by way of his holy nation, his people, the church, you. God didn't need us to do that. God can proclaim his glories all by himself, but in his infinite mercy, he chooses to use us to do that. Isn't that amazing? Now, is that how you would characterize your life? Are you marveling at the grace of God in Christ on a daily basis? Are you seeing Christ? Are you savoring Christ in his word And then as you're transformed by his word, are you then saying those same things in your everyday conversations with people? Remember, before you get too too proud or accept that as your, uh, your own gift, think about this. You can only see those things because God has graciously shown them to you. Think about 2 Corinthians 4, one of my favorite passages. It says, first that the god of this world our enemy has blinded the minds of the unbelievers which was you at one time to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ but then and this is the amazing grace of god he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face Of Jesus Christ he has caused us to see the beauty of Christ so that now we can say I love him God has pulled us out of darkness and into his marvelous light and if that wasn't enough he now gives us the privilege of proclaiming his excellencies to those still in the dark he draws a people to himself through his people We are the means by which God's light bursts into a darkened world. What a privilege that is. I hope that that resonates in your heart today. Be God's light to others that don't yet believe in Jesus. Let your words and let your good deeds shine before men that they might have the veil lifted from their hearts, seeing the light of the glory of Christ and that ultimately they glorify the same Father that we have in heaven. Brothers and sisters, be bold as you leave this place, proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, so that others might, with us, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen? Let's pray together. O oh Father, give us a passion. For not just tasting of your goodness ourselves, but that as our cups are overflowed with your goodness, that it would overflow into the lives of those you've sovereignly placed in our paths. That we would see every person that we interact with as an opportunity to share your love with. God, that's our mission in this world. We're just passing through, but as we pass through, let us bring others along with us to say, come and be satisfied in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.